Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. This episode features Tony Blair. We reflect on his three election campaigns, how he felt this close to polling day at the start of this final week, the priorities for leaders going into polling day, the nature of TV debates, whether he'd have done them, the masochism strategy of 2005, and so much more. As you would imagine, this is absolutely packed. Um, I began by asking him a slightly cheeky question. I'll leave you in the hands of Tony Blair. So, Tony, it's a big question. Who should a Blairite vote for in this election? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> um, well, I think it's, it's important um, to back good candidates. And for me, Brexit's still the key issue because it's, it's not a decision as to who runs the government for the next few years. It's a decision for generations. So I think if you're in a... Uh, constituency, I've obviously been um, said I'm voting Labour. Uh, there are good Labour candidates to back. I've been campaigning for them. Um, I can understand why. Let me choose my words carefully. Um, I can understand why if you're a constituency and it's obvious that it's a Tory Lib Dem battle, um, that people would vote vote Lib Dem, for example. So, um, but I think I, I think it's a cons- an election in which you've really got to look constituency by constituency. And I know people find it very difficult because the choices are, you know, the choices are, are, are pretty horrible within the context of this election for all the reasons we know. So when you're out there on the doorstep, door knocking again for the Labour Party, what's the public's reaction when they open the door and there's Tony Blair? Um, well, <laughs> I can't say I've actually just been doing the normal run-of-the-mill canvassing, uh, but I have gone into places and, and uh, you know, seen people, oh, they're a bit kind of surprised actually but it's been it's been good to be out again and be out supporting people but also yeah the, uh, talking to people what, what, about what concerns them and I think I've never known an election where there's so much confusion and anxiety I mean obviously there are people who feel so strongly about Brexit one way or another that they're they're very clear what they want to do but I think there are a lot of people who are not that certain about Brexit and not that certain about who they really think should be Prime Minister of the country. With tactical voting, in 1997 it had its high watermark really and that that was partly because yourself and Paddy Ashton were so openly uh, positive towards each other and there was clear talk that if perhaps she didn't achieve a majority there would be some sort of deal with the Liberal Democrats. This time the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats don't have the same affection towards each other publicly that can make it harder to convince people to vote tactically. I mean, in reality, how much effect could tactical voting have this time? I think it could have a big effect, but you're absolutely right to say that one of the benefits of, of being in the centre ground of politics is that those who, who aren't of your political party uh, are of a different political tribe, if you like, feel much more permission to, to vote in a way that benefits you. Whereas if you're parked as the Labour Party has been and is very much on a one end of the political spectrum, then those towards the centre feel it harder to be drawn towards you. So that's obviously true and it complicates tactical voting. On the other hand, I do think, you know, that people when they, they weigh up how to vote are I mean let I mean to put it bluntly, they may think, look, I don't like Jeremy Corbyn, but on the other hand, I don't think Boris Johnson should have a majority. And if it the way of stopping that is to vote for Labour, then I will. And that they feel that particularly where you get seats where there are good you know, good Labour candidates. Um and, you know, you, you take somewhere like Canterbury, for example, and I think even if you're 
a strong Remainer who might even prefer the Lib Dem policy position to Labour's, you'll back a good Labour candidate. Uh, you talk about tribal uh, and feeling tribal. Do you still feel tribally Labour or do you feel more tribally Remain? I feel um, tribally Labour because I think you, you, you always do feel an attachment. But I'm very, very clear about this. The Labour Party, in the end, is not a tribe. It's a cause. And it's very important always to distinguish between the tribe and the cause. And, you know, even though it's inevitable if you've been almost half a century in a political party, as I have been, and I led it for 13 years and was its longest serving prime minister, you're bound to feel a certain tribal affiliation. And, you know, when I go out and I meet some of the what I would call the mainstream Labour people, you know, I'm again struck by their common sense, their decency, their principle, their determination. I mean, they're great people and I would never feel anything other than a deep affection for them. But, you know, the Labour Party is a cause in the end. And that's why it's important that it's able to fulfil its cause. On the other side, when you're doing these rallies, as you were the other day with Michael Haseltine and John Major, these are people who are traditionally in a different tribe. Now you find yourself, because of Brexit and other issues perhaps, in a, in a, in a different tribe with them. I mean, it must, there must be a pleasant feeling to be able to be so warm towards an old opponent. But do you still feel like enemies? No, I don't think we ever felt like enemies anyway, actually. We felt like opponents. And there is a difference, and it's an important difference for democracy. You know, you shouldn't hate the people who disagree with you. In a democracy, they just disagree. You know, you have a fight and, you know, you win or you lose. And I, I you know, even back then, I was always very clear. I mean, I had, a, I had respect for John Major even when I was fighting him head on, you know, and I was always aware of the fact that a lot of his problems were to do with the Conservative Party, and by the way, to do with the Conservative Party over Europe. Um, and it's the tragedy for Britain, not just the Conservative Party, that this this um, insatiable desire for Euroscepticism, which is just a completely misplaced ideology in today's world, that it's gripped their party. And now you've got a situation where, you know, even though I, I suspect most of the top people in the Conservative Party, most, not all now, but most really understand that Brexit is not a sensible thing for the country to do. Nonetheless, they're going along with it. You did this rally with John Major, with Michael Heseltine. You've got yeah. yourself there. It's strange. It, well, it, it's strange. It's also wonderful for a lot of people to see, I think, even if they disagree with you. I think there's, there's a, a large element of the public that would always like to see former opponents coming together, even if they don't agree with the cause. Gordon Brown seems to be the one name that's missing from that lineup. Do you think he would ever come along and do something with you all? Um, no, I'm, sh- I'm sure he, he feels the same. Uh, and, you know, he does intervene from time to time, but that's probably a question to put to Gordon. <laughs> I certainly will. Uh, I read an interview with, with Noel Gallagher recently. He told a story that he bumped into a few months ago. He said, I was out about two months ago <laughs> and I bumped into Tony Blair in the foyer of a hotel and I said, I bet you're glad you're out of it now, aren't you, mate? And he said, actually, I'm not. I wish I was fucking back in it because it's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a verbatim account? Well, I think Noel no has, has got his own inimitable style of expression. Um, can't honestly remember whether I put it quite like that, but I think probably I wouldn't have. <laughs> Maybe not in those exact no, words. But, um, uh, anyway, it's quite funny. You know, my my family was asking whether I'd actually said that. The kids said, "Dad, did you actually say that?" Said, well, not really. <laughs> it must be quite nice to see him again, though. Have you seen him since Downing Street? Um, I don't. I'm not 
sure the last time I saw him before that. Um, although, even though he expresses himself in that uh, in that way, he's actually got a very acute political mind, in fact. Well, I would agree. Um, we're now in the final week of the campaign. Just trying to reminisce about the, the campaigns where you were leader of the Labour Party in 97, in 2001 and 2005, going into the final week. What are the priorities and what were your priorities on a, on a Monday morning in the final week of the campaign going into those three elections? Well, I think it was always in those three elections, since we were always substantially ahead, was making sure people weren't complacent, um, making sure that they realised if they didn't come out and vote, there was a a risk of the other side winning. But we were always in quite a difficult position because we were ahead and usually substantially ahead, even in 2005. I mean, I was not really in any doubt that we would win it. The question was by how much and, you know, did, did people want to clip our wings, which which they did in a way. And as you go into the third election, that's inevitable. Um, but no, that's the, when you're in that final week, but it all depends what your position is. You know, and, and you, you obviously want the the central message to be to be kept, which was I think in two thousand and five was forward not back really, which was our attempt to express the fact that we both had an agenda for modernising the country that we should continue, and our designation of the Conservative Party at that point um, as being essentially unreformed. I mean, then David Cameron took it over and did make reforms to it, but unreformed and therefore people shouldn't go backwards. In terms of the calculations that different leaders are making at this point, do you think Boris Johnson is right to try and avoid Andrew Neil? Um, it's always difficult to avoid doing a big interview like that because in the end people are going to conclude that you're frightened of the questions. Um, so, I mean, having said that, you know, I never ended up doing leaders' debates um, because I just couldn't see any any point to it f- for me at that stage. I mean, nowadays you'd obviously have to, but um, so I kind of understand why he's decided not to, but I also understand why people point out that there is an obvious reason for that, since Andrew is, a, as we've seen, a very forensic interviewer. When you watch the leaders' debates or the Andrew Neil uh, shows, as a former leader, do you watch them? as maybe a former footballer does and think you shouldn't have said that, you should have done this. <laughs> um, a bit. But, you know, my, my principal thing, because I know what it's like to be in this situation. And, you know, one of the things, by the way, to say is that being in an election campaign like that and constantly on the go and, you know, you're doing you know several different events and then you're suddenly thrown into a really tough interview and you get a question you didn't anticipate, didn't expect, or is put in a way that you didn't quite you haven't quite prepared for, you know, my, I am more of the, I'm sympathising with the interviewee, you know, because I know what it's like to be there. And you suddenly, you know, you, you, you realise that you're in a situation you didn't anticipate or expect. And then, you know, these are, you've got to have a certain resilience of character to go through that. And I say that about any of the three leaders in, or four leaders actually in the campaign, you know, it takes people, People sometimes on the outside don't understand how tough it is. Joe Swinson had a particularly tough time from the audience in that first question time leaders debate. Just in terms of her personal performance, how do you rate her as a leader? So I actually think she uh, did better in that 
um, format that is question time, was it? Yes. Yeah, the question time format. I thought she did better than people said she did. I did. Right. But uh, I thought the audience were hard on her. Yes, exactly. That's what I thought. And by the way, that's what a lot of people will have thought. Because, look, it's the classic thing, I'm afraid, with the way the TV stations do their audiences. What they think is it's a balanced audience. If you get one half of this vigorously one way and another half of this vigorously the other way. And, of course, most normal people aren't. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always difficult for the person who's more in the centre. But I actually thought she answered the questions well. But, you know, look, I, I said this right at the very outset... Before the election was called, I was begging the opposition parties not to give Boris Johnson a Brexit general election because it was obvious what he was going to do. He was going to rely on two factors to pull him across the line on Brexit, even though there may well be a majority in this country now and not for going forward with Brexit. Um, and those two factors were obviously the issue of the Corbyn leadership and the divided opposition if you split between Lib Dems and Labour. So for the Lib Dems, by the way, they were always going to be subject to a squeeze in those circumstances. Because as I was saying to you earlier, you will have people in seats who say, look, I basically would prefer the Lib Dems, but I know they're not going to be the government and I don't want Boris Johnson with the majority. So even if I'm not keen on Jeremy Corbyn, I'm still going to vote Labour. So this is always going to be the problem for the Lib Dems in this election. And do you think that would have been a problem for them even without the revoke policy? That it's not really so much about revoke, it's just the reality of a two-party system and an election like this? Yeah, I think it is. That there, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't have done the revoke policy either, but, um, uh, but I don't think that's the principal reason. And I think you know, one of the things that's very frustrating is it should have been a point of principle not to mix Brexit up with the general election. They're two separate questions. And, you know, Boris Johnson was actually in a box, locked up in that box, right? Not able to move unless the opposition gave him the key. And unfortunately, they decided to give him the key. So that's why, why we are where we are. But, you know, it's, a, it's going to be a a very difficult situation. I mean, you know, we'll just have to live with it. Um, if, if he ends up with a majority, and yet if you add up the anti-Brexit percentages of the vote of the anti-Brexit parties, or the parties not agreeing with the Tory policy on Brexit, you find that that comes to a bigger um, percentage vote than his. That, that will be a problem. You may want a hung parliament. A lot of people, even people who voted Remain, might say, this just needs dealing with now. Do you think the Tory messaging actually has been quite effective in terms of get Brexit done? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's an obvious message to give um, it, because people are utterly fatigued. They're bored of Brexit. Everyone's bored. You're bored of Brexit. I'm bored of Brexit. We're all bored of Brexit. Everyone's bored of Brexit. How would you not be? You've had three and a half years of total nightmare. But, you know, as I, I said in the speech the other day, it, 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 it literally is like, you know, when you're... Your, your laces are in a knot and you think if you pull it, it's going to unravel faster and actually you just find the knot gets tighter and sometimes you've got to unpick the knot. And so I understand why people say, I just want to pull this thing and get it over with. Right, okay. But the fact is Brexit's not over. I mean, this is the big Tory con or Boris con. I mean, it's just not true. You've got a negotiation where... Unfortunately, because they've not been forensically tested in the way they should have been in the course of this election, people do think it's not just doing Brexit, it's going to be done and and over with. And it's the and over with that is obviously false because the, the, the dilemma that the government will immediately get into is whether they diverge from Europe's rules in this future negotiation between Britain and Europe. So if they do, it's clear 
Every single person in Europe I've spoken to says, if the British really want to have a divergent set of regulations and different tax policies as it relates to the single market, this negotiation is going to be long and very difficult. So when they say we're going to, it's sort of oven ready, I mean, and it's all ready to go and it's just going to be easy to do, it's nonsense. And when they, by the way, say this other thing that they say, I heard it being said by a Conservative minister yesterday, you know, but we're already aligned with Europe, so it's a very easy negotiation to do. No, that's the reason why it's very difficult if you've decided you now want to diverge. In other words, it's clear what the rules are. Mm. So if we are saying we now want to diverge from Europe's rules, Europe's not going to say, well, you can cherry pick which parts of the rules you like and don't like, and we'll still give you access to our markets. I mean, they're not going to do that. And by the way, on fisheries, for example, where people also say, well, now we're going to get control of our fishing back. Well, there are seven, eight countries in Europe that are absolutely determined to have a big negotiation over fisheries. So that all of these things are going to be on the table. And the, the negotiation on a trade deal, as anyone who's ever experienced trade deals knows, is you take the matrix of all the different elements and they have to shuffle them around until they, you know, it's like a Rubik's Cube to solve, right? You've got to lock them in the right place. There's no way they're going to do that in six months if they want to diverge. And so the question will be very simply, as it was over Northern Ireland, um, do you actually want to stay inside the European trading system and its rules or not? And in the end with Northern Ireland, of course, what Boris Johnson did is he decided to sell the unionists out and finally agreed to make the backstop a front stop. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Do you, do you get the sense that the public hold two opinions? One is that they just want this thing over, but also that they don't necessarily trust Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn to deliver a good Brexit deal. Yes, but, you know, the public also, you know, sometimes in politics, it's the job of the political leader to challenge the public because there is no good Brexit deal in that sense. I mean, it's always been a choice between a deal that's pointless or painful. The pointless one is you stay within Europe's trading system, in which case... What's the point of doing it? And the painful one is you break free, in inverted commas, make your own rules up, in which case it's going to be painful. In 2005, you had something called a masochism strategy. Um, Was it called that at the time, or is that something that, in retrospect, it was labelled? No, no, it was was at the time, I think. Uh, um, Yeah, yeah, we just decided you've got to, to go and... I mean, that's why... I think if I'd been Boris Johnson, I would have volunteered for the Andrew Neil thing, even though it's, it was, it's obviously going to be a very difficult interview. Because I just think you need... People, want, people always want to see the front-runner really tested. And how hard... Were there long conversations about that? Were you, were you initially reluctant to go and do all... Effectively, the masochism strategy was to do all the hardest interviews in the campaign, to be seen to be held to account by the toughest interviewers on radio and television... Um, was that something that you were always in favour of or did you need a bit of convincing? No, I was always in favour of it because I thought this is, 
particularly, frankly, post 9-11, post Afghanistan, Iraq and all of that, you just had to be, you had to be clearly willing to go and, and, and face the toughest questioning. And uh, do you remember any of those experiences? Are there any beatings that, that live in the memory? Um, well, they were all pretty testing at the time, <laughs> I remember. But I, didn't, I, I, I never had a problem arguing my case. Um, and I think one of the, the things that's really important to do in politics is a very odd thing about politics because it, retail politics is very crude. But the best retail politics is underpinned by intellectual analysis. And it's something you can forget very easily in politics. I mean, I learned this principally, actually, from watching Bill Clinton in, in, when I was still leader of the opposition. Because he, Clinton was someone who, as a retail politician, his messages were very simple. But he, he had this really very considerable intellect which he disguised in, in one sense, because, you know, no one wants an intellectual in, in, that, in that way, you know, retail politics. But, but the point is, your positions should be really worked out. And, you know, I always used to spend a lot of time and still do just working out the intellectual basis for what then gets translated into a very direct, simple argument. But you, you mustn't ever confuse the fact that the message is simple with, you know, superficial policy making. Campaigns can be chaos though at times. You're trying to impose order, but the public get in the way, interviewers getting in the way. I remember in 2001, on the same day that you were <laughs> accosted by Sharon Storer outside a, outside a, a hospital in Birmingham, Prescott, John Prescott punched someone in the face and there's something else going on. On days like that, did you think, oh, we've thrown it all away? I, I actually didn't because I always had an appreciation of what the public would think is really important and not. And there are two interesting lessons from both of those things. The first is the media always thinks that a politician being heckled, something thrown over them, you know, that's a huge issue. Uh, it shows that the politician's, you know, not popular or whatever it is. No, the public don't think like that. They know that people who throw things over people or who shout at people, I'm not saying this, this Sharon story thing was slightly different actually, but you know, because this was a genuine case of someone who was genuinely anxious about um, about their loved ones. So that's a different case. But, you know, I, I said this recently when someone threw something over Nigel Farage and someone said, well, isn't that isn't it fantastic? Someone, you know, <laughs> and I said, no, it's not. It's The public is not going to respond by thinking that it's a reasonable way to conduct your politics. So, you know, in the end, those issues affect the outcome far less than people think. And that's why when Boris Johnson goes somewhere and someone shouts something at him or heckles him, now I promise you that doesn't move a vote either way. The second thing that was interesting about the Prescott thing is, you know, it's obviously unusual for the Deputy Prime Minister to sort of deck a, a voter. <laughs> that, that, uh, so when I was, I'd already had a bad day. I actually had a very tough interview as well. I had a, some TV thing that was also very tough that day. And I was, you know, ready to drop at the end of the day. And then I got a message from Alistair saying, uh, you know, John Prescott's just hit someone. And I couldn't believe that. I thought he just inverted it. So I said, oh, my God, someone's hit John Prescott. And he said, no, no, John Prescott's hit a voter. I said, oh, OK. So, and then, then there was literally for the next 24 hours, there was a vast discussion in, internally as to how I dealt with this at the press conference because 
on the one side, obviously, you know, for the deputy prime minister to sort of slug voters is probably not a wise course. But on the other hand, I was sure that the public, since the guy tried to hit John, would be 100% with, with John. So we ended up finally deciding that they, I came up with the line at the press conference, which is, well, John is John. And everyone, that sort of, everyone said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, look, what I mean is what I say. So there it is, and we got through it. Maybe is that something for, for Labour to try and weaponise this time, maybe for John McDonald to slap someone in these final days? Uh, no, I wouldn't advise it. It's all about context. <laughs> um, I read a piece about Sedgefield yesterday that I'm sure you'll have seen in the Sunday Times, this bedrock, a, a symbolic seat, really, in terms of the seat that you held with a majority of nearly 30,000 at one point. Now we read that it's on the verge of, of voting for the Tories, that it's neck and neck there. I mean, how does that make you feel, seeing a place so close to your heart potentially turn its back on Labour? No, I feel really bad for him. I feel bad for, for Phil Wilson, who's a great candidate and really good guy, by the way and very brave politician, and who in a solidly leave seat has been prepared to argue as to why it's best to, for the people to have the final say and, and you know, has not hidden his position on, on Remain. So he's a very courageous guy, Phil, and great guy. Um, but no, it's, look, it's... The thing about constituencies like Sedgefield is that they're, you know, they're deeply patriotic. They believe in things like solid law and order. You know, they expect their political leaders to be of the same sort. Um, now, the fact of the matter is, the Tories will do nothing for them. So I very much hope they don't vote Tory because it won't help them at all. Um, these constituencies need Labour governments, but uh, no, it's, it's, it, it doesn't surprise me because I was there and I knew what people were saying. Um, but it saddens me, of course. But would you have ever have believed when you were representing Sedgefield, if someone said to you when you had that majority of nearly 30,000, you know, the not too distant future, this is going to be a marginal and the Tories might take it. No, I wouldn't have. But then I wouldn't have protected the course of the Labour Party. <laughs> no, or Brexit or... Yeah, no, or, or a million other things. Obviously Brexit's an issue too, but I, you know, I think that in constituencies like that, there is an issue around the Labour leadership for sure. How do you think politics returns to normal? And, and is there an outcome of this election that, that could help facilitate that as quickly as possible? Well, I think there's an outcome, which is a hung parliament, that you know, can facilitate a resolution of Brexit that's sensible. Because the, the real problem with the, what the Conservatives are doing, quite apart from the fact that Brexit isn't over, as I was just saying a moment ago, the problem is that by the time we realise that and that we realise we're in another really hideous negotiation where the choices are basically sell out, crash out or stalemate, um, we will have left. Because one of the many errors, I'm afraid, that was made in this whole post Brexit referendum situation was was two really serious strategic errors in my view. The first was to trigger Article 50 before we knew what we wanted. And the second was <clears throat> to allow this negotiation to be divided into two bits with the future relationship between Britain and Europe, which after all is the important part of the negotiation, only being embarked upon once we've left. And by then we've got, now we've got no negotiating leverage. And, you know, one of the things I think that has been a constant factor of this is the gross underestimation, despite, by the way, the system, I know, telling the, the government the opposite, the gross underestimation of Europe's determination to stick together on this. 
And, you know, for, for Europe, Brexit obviously could have been a moment of fragmentation. It's actually been a moment of unification, mm. right? So as we go forward, it's going to be exactly the same. And, and people who think that, the, you know, the Europeans are going to split off and the Germans are going to be doing one deal and the French trying to do another and blah, blah, forget it. It's not going to happen. They're going to absolutely hold solidly together. And we will be faced with, us, as I say, either sell out, which is just accepting we remain part of the European trading system, in which case we can do a quick deal, but then the Brexiteers are going to cry betrayal. Crash out, because if we hold to this 2020 um, deadline and say we want to diverge from Europe's rules, there's no way that's going to be negotiated in a year. Uh, or stalemate, which I think is very possible, which is, you know, we end up having to seek a negotiation extension and then we're, we're in limbo land for years. In, for the future of the Labour Party, and maybe, maybe the Labour Party has, has finished in terms of its being able to facilitate centre-left progressive politics in this country. But is, do you ever think, well, if the Labour Party loses, at least it can begin this process of repairing, it, it gives it a chance to rechart a course, to, to correct its path? Well, the, the problem is that, that the consequences... Of a, of a bad defeat are probably a hard Brexit. I mean, that's the problem. The problem is that it's, you're not talking about just a consequence around normal British politics. This is the, the dilemma that people face. But in the end, of course, the Labour Party, you know, we were talking about earlier about the Labour Party a tribe or a cause. I mean, it is a cause and the cause is to govern you know, to be a government, to govern in the interests of those who are often neglected by the Conservatives. And, you know, the history of the last hundred years tells us that when Labour is in power, you can always advance the cause of, of um, you know, working people, if you want to use that phrase. Um, and when we're in opposition, we achieve nothing. So this is, this is the, 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 you know, this will be the challenge. Election night is just a few nights away. Where will you watch it and what will you be doing? I watch it at home in the normal way. Although I, I confess with all these things, I even when I was... Well, actually, the first occasion in 1997, I think I stayed up all night, but in the 2001, 2005, I didn't really, once it was pretty clear what was happening. And does it give you butterflies? Does it take you back to those campaigns that you fought? Yes, but this time it will be different. Because I think what's at stake for the country is really serious. Uh, and, you know, this election, I've never felt such a situation of frustration in, 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 in politics, actually. And finally, it's, it's almost Christmas. Will you be watching the Queen's speech? <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> Tony Blair, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, there you go, Tony Blair, packed full of insights, as always. Always a pleasure to pick his brains, particularly this close to polling day in one of the most volatile and unpredictable elections that any of us can remember. Thanks for all your uh, emails. Keep them coming into politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And please leave a review, if you can. Uh, subscribe, tell all your friends, and I'll see you tomorrow.